Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI, a socialist radio show and podcast from the members of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Lee Zishi, and today we have Hunter Boone and Jamie Peck with us to talk about how capitalism is destroying media and journalism and what media workers are doing to fight back. And then we'll be opening up the phone lines to hear from all of you. But first, we have the headlines with a socialist analysis with Jack Devine. Hudson Yards, the biggest private real estate development in U.S. history, opened in New York City on March 15th. As we discussed in RPM a couple weeks ago, the developer company Related, which received billions of dollars in subsidies from the government for this project, is trying to turn into an open shop in an effort to undermine union power. Their billionaire owner, Stephen Ross, is happy to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to slap his name on business schools at prominent university but not one extra penny for quality wages and safe working conditions. Meanwhile, tonight, as rents continue to skyrocket due to the real estate developers' class war against working people, about one out of every 10 students in the New York City public school system will sleep in a homeless shelter or in the homes of relatives. That's over 114,000 students throughout the year who are disproportionately from black and brown communities. Such class and racial divisions are reflected by who attends New York City's well-funded public schools. Of the 895 spots in Stuyvesant High School's freshman class, only seven were offered to black students. In Pittsburgh, thousands of students hit the streets to fight back against white supremacy. Three shots in the back, how do you justify that? They chanted, echoing the rallying cry that was shouted hundreds of times this past weekend in a series of demonstrations after former police officer Michael Rosfeld was acquitted in Antoine Rose's murder. While he continues to feign wokeness here in New York, Mayor de Blasio declared his allegiance to white settler colonialism abroad. As Israel unleashed another round of bombing against Palestinians in Gaza, de Blasio spoke at the AIPAC conference alongside fascistic politicians like Benjamin Netanyahu and Mike Pence. Whose side are you on? In other imperial violence, food stamp cuts have devastated 1.3 million Puerto Ricans. HIV patients have been forced to sit for hours in their own filth because diapers are too expensive. Mothers are cutting back on produce and meat for kids. The elderly are expected to go hungry. Solidarity with all those facing the onslaught of empire. While Cuomo continues to lash out at socialist organizers for stopping the Amazon deal, the tech monopoly continued its war on worker power. An employee at their Staten Island distribution facility was fired after trying to unionize his colleagues. The retail wholesale and department store union filed a federal complaint on his behalf. Workers continue to fight back against the tyranny of capital. Kickstarter's Brooklyn staff is seeking to form a union with the Office and Professional Employees International Union, one of the most significant tech unionization efforts to date. Across the country, the strike wave continues to gather momentum. 1,500 graduate workers at the University of Illinois in Chicago are on strike, 
while 39,000 workers and the University of California system went on strike last week. Additionally, thousands of Uber and Lyft drivers went on strike yesterday in Los Angeles, highlighting how the flexibility of the gig economy is just propaganda to undermine the collective power of organized labor. The over 10,000 nurses at the New York Presbyterian, Montefiore, and Mount Sinai hospital systems who had threatened to go on strike are now putting the plan on hold. NYSNA said after six months of negotiations, progress has been made towards a possible settlement with management. We'll see how that goes. However, the New York City DSA's labor branch will be holding a solidarity kickoff party and strike fundraiser with several nurse union organizers on April 1st in case a strike proves necessary. Solidarity with the nurses and all the workers of the world. Our daily headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, a weekly newsletter directly to your inbox by the New York City DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. You can subscribe at thethorn.nyc. This is Revolutions Per Minute, and today we're talking about media workers and how capitalism is affecting journalism. So in the studio, we have Jamie, who is a writer, contributor at Majority Report, and co-host at Antifada Podcast. She's on the organ organizing committee for North Brooklyn DSA. We also have Hunter, who is a producer wire, at Wirecutter at New York Times. He is a past uh, organizing committee member with the New York City DSA Media Working Group, and he has been an organizer with the Writers Guild at MTV. Um, so let's start with you, Jamie. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, some of the work you've done, and how that led you to become a member of DSA? Sure. Well, I'm actually writing a book-length answer right now. I'm working on a book proposal, so this is good practice. Um, I mean, I've been, I've wanted to be a writer for my whole life. I've been writing for pretty much my whole life. Um, after college, I kind of struggled a bit to find work for myself. Um, I did some freelancing for the New York Press, R.I.P., Vice, uh, Suicide Girls, um, Believe it or not, the, it was not the most, uh, let's say, welcoming atmosphere for women at the time at Vice. Um, I was just a freelancer, so I guess you can't technically sexually harass a freelancer by law, but it definitely felt like it happened. Um, then I moved into lady blogs, which were exploitative in a whole different way. Um, I was a permalancer, which is basically an illegally classified worker where they boss you around like you're on staff but they pay you $20 a post with no benefits so that was fun um and around uh around the time of Occupy Wall Street I would say I got um pretty pretty radicalized I started dating a Marxist history professor so that was part of it but um like my experiences up until then had been leading me to that for a while um and then I got a staff job at Death and Taxes, which was part of Spin Media, where I conducted an unsuccessful organizing drive. I can say that now because it is over. Um, hopefully, they'll still do it, but uh, I'm not that optimistic about it. And then um, I quit. I just I had a horrible, abusive boss once again, and I just couldn't do it anymore after like I, I got pretty far actually with this organizing drive and then the company was broken up and sold to a bigger company as often happens and I was like Ugh, I've been holding on all this time I can't 
I really can't do this any longer. And then I went back to being a freelancer. And I wrote for The Guardian a bit broadly, uh, Rolling Stone. Um, and around the time my career got really, really good, um, the money also seemed to go away. Or maybe it had been happening my entire career, but they didn't even like cancel each other out anymore. Uh, I was like, wow, what am I going to do now? And then I got offered a job at The Majority Report with Sam Cedar, which is a podcast. So I was like, great, podcasts, user-supported content. are it, It's the future. And now I have my own podcast as well with my uh, the same uh, the same Marxist professor, actually, to bring it back to the beginning, who is my husband now, but he's uh, he's actually uh, he works in the building trades now. Great. And what about you, Hunter? What's kind of what's yeah. your story? Uh, I'll go back four years ago to 2015. I was working on an HBO show called Vice Principals, and it was like daily contracts, and I really. Um, I was used to it, and I think everyone else was kind of like in the South. There's no unions, and you know you're kind of like thankful for those jobs. And uh, the day we wrapped, I got an offer with Funnier Die in New York City, and I went straight for it. And it was an assistant director's position, and it was a SAG set, but not for production. So I was uh, a contractor working insane hours, but again thankful and being told like this is like you paying your dues and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it didn't work out. The shoot was with Mariah Carey. It went horrible. <laughs> and SAG actually shut us down because we were abusing our actors. And uh, I didn't have a job. And I was in New York paying insane rent in Harlem. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And I got a job very quickly in L.A. But this was for five weeks. And it turned into six months. And it was permalance. And I, again, was like, well, it's all I have. It's paying my bills. But, like, I don't, really don't know how to, like, get to staff. Like, I haven't figured out that you know, that step yet. And, uh, was laid off, was sexually harassed actually at my job, was laid off when I reported it and came back to New York. Um, and then started bouncing around very quickly. And this is like right whenever the pivot to video was happening. So I would get a job somewhere as a contractor at will, you know, pretty much like indefinite employment. And then it would just disappear because the pivot would happen. People would unionize and they would get rid of the freelancers, only keep the staff. So I went from like Nat Geo to Mashable to, uh, True TV on Impractical Jokers, and then I landed at MTV. And when I was at MTV, it was like such a whirlwind from HBO. This was, this was within a year. It was such a whirlwind from HBO to MTV that uh, people were talking about unionizing, and I was instantly like, oh, yeah, like what's going on? And joined very quickly, became a bargaining member. And so with the Writers Guild, and this was maybe like when HuffPo and Vice and maybe Slate were organizing. So it was like very early in this like trend that was happening with like digital newsrooms. And we thought like, oh no, we're great. We got this like brand, like no one's gonna like mess with us. Like they're gonna, of course, let this happen. We met for eight months and they never showed up to one meeting. And we were like, what are we gonna do? We all got laid off. Um, well, the majority of the organizers got laid off. I was then transferred to television and that was a, like a trick to like union bust. Cause then I was pulled out of the union and then I was like still working for the company and then eventually got laid off. The job was offered to a close friend of mine, just kind of shows like how small the industry is he didn't take it and then the people that laid me off went to vice and now they're part of their union so it's like kind of like a little ironic because it's like you know you destroyed our union and now you're unionizing but you know whatever people got to keep jobs there's no ethical consumption and you know capitalism um and especially in in news desks it's such a mess whenever you have to make ad sales to like supply the paychecks for these people um but yeah after mtv um I went back to freelancing, kept on getting laid off um, because of other places 
organizing pretty much the second I got there, which just was showing the trend. Like when I started the New Yorker, the second day they announced their union, my boss came up to me and was like, is this your doing? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I was the Writers Guild. I wasn't News Guild. And also it doesn't take a day to organize. <laughs> um, it takes a year. Um, but they didn't believe it. And the News Guild tried to save me. Uh, and actually, like, started contacting the lawyer at Condé Nast, and he lied and said I was, like, on a three-month contract when I wasn't. Um, I also worked for Thrillist whenever they were organizing. Um, that was a horrible mess. I was getting paid, like, under the table. There was no contract. I was working, like, seven days a week. But, again, whenever you're a contractor and you can't get these jobs, like, you're, you're paycheck to paycheck. You have to take this work. But, you know, you reach kind of a boiling point, and you're like, I don't know how long I could take this. So I was, like, saving money, got out of there, went to the New Yorker, got laid off at New Yorker, then had an interview at NBC, and my fourth interview, when I was going to get the job, they were like, should we be worried about your writer's guild experience? So what I was learning was that, yes, this is a trend, but like still, businesses don't like this, because <laughs> it costs money in a way. You know, you'd have to restructure, but also there's such a stigma whenever you become an organizer, because that's what was happening to me. New Yorker was like, how dare you? NBC was like, we can't hire you. And then um, now I'm at the New York Times, and somehow got staff, and it's such a different world. And I'm very thankful for it. But at the same time, like, I didn't have to pay my dues to get here. Like, it shouldn't be this way. But I've been told that for years. And I think it's just become normalized. Um, and besides those, all those jobs, I've been all over the place. I also worked for Vox. And they were also unionizing at the same time. And that was a really interesting experience because I learned how clicky some unions can be and how they weren't really, like, trying to fight for certain people. They're really just, like, protecting themselves. But... You know, that's a whole other story. But yeah, it's it's been a it's been a whirlwind the past four years, like gauging all this. But I joined uh the DSA the day I got laid off at MTV. Um, because it was just like where do you turn? Like after Union got busted, I didn't know, and started meeting a lot of other people that had similar experiences and yeah, it's been nice to see that kind of camaraderie, like, yeah, you know, this happens. It sucks that's normalized, but it happens. And what's some of the organizing you've done within the DSA? Uh, I was an uh, OC with the working group. Um, didn't really get to do too much, but I did get to see a lot of people from Vice, they're part of the DSA, put together a lot of these groups. And it was just really nice to see a lot of other freelancers like experiencing the same stuff. And I was like really happy to like give them my advice and also to get to hear like what they're working on. And it's been a really good network to like rely on those people. Like those are write or die people. Uh, that's so important because when you're a freelancer, you never see anyone. Like no. you're lucky if you meet your editor once. Mm -hmm. You don't get invited to parties. You don't know your coworkers unless you really, really make an effort to on top of like that's a, working yeah. really hard. And, you know, some people come in with this mentality like I'm going to rise to the top, especially if you come from, like I did, like sort of the blog world of the aughts where everyone is such a smart ass and they all think that they're like better than everyone and they're like, no, what I say goes, I'm going to make fun of you. Like that's not that conducive to solidarity. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, there's such a weird culture whenever you work in a newsroom. I mean, I'll just refer to, uh, not device, to MTV. Um, if you're a staffer, like you really do have like this different kind of just respect in the office that freelancers don't get. And it's like something that you can become a part of if you like really work hard towards like networking with those people and like becoming like their friends. And like it's taxing because you're already working like 16 hours a day putting out fires as the freelancer. <laughs> and now I have to like schmooze with people that treat me like crap. You know, it's like it's it, it is that is a way to get into it. But it's to me, it's not worth it. You know, it's it's going against my integrity in a weird way, you know. 
Yeah, you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today we have Hunter and Jamie in the studio, and we were just talking a lot about their different experiences in a multitude of jobs, freelancing, in in the media industry. And um, another thing you kind of talked about, like, well, this company now that is owned by this company, could, uh, Jamie, maybe you talk a little bit about how, just in general... You know, I think people see like a lot of names, but they don't realize a lot of these different outlets are owned by the same companies and just kind of mm-hmm. the tr- what how capitalism is shaping the media landscape right now. Yeah, well, this is one more example of the tendency of capital to try to accumulate itself is uh, as much as it possibly can. So, you know, unless we have uh, regulations or, I don't know, antitrust laws being enforced, um, companies are going to buy up all the smaller companies in an effort to win the Monopoly game and eventually own everything. So I used to work at Death and Taxes when it was a part of Spin Media. It was actually a pretty good-sized company to organize. It wasn't too big. It wasn't too small. Um, I talked to so many people one-on-one. Everyone wanted a union. Nobody wanted to help. Everyone was just either too busy or too tired or too scared or just like looking for the next thing. But I was like, well, what would make you want to stay here for longer? Um, I know it was probably easier when we were all like 25 to deal with this kind of low pay. But then, you know, fast forward to 10 years later, uh, if you want to start a family, you want to save for your retirement and you just always assume that the money would take care of itself right because that's what all millennials were raised to believe do what you love and you'll figure it out it'll be great but like no actually we have to do something about it so um i was trying to organize this union and i almost managed to do what you're not supposed to be able to do which is to do it with only one person really doing the work Um, I was getting ready. I was making a Facebook event of a meeting with the uh, WGA at their offices when I found out about the sale. And what Mm -hmm. that meant was um, spin, vibe, stereo gum. And for some reason, death of taxes got bought by the company that owns Billboard and The Hollywood Reporter, making it the single biggest music brand in the world, I believe. And the other sites, uh, the Frisky and some other websites, just kind of got cut loose to die. And there were some of the stronger supporters actually lost their jobs in the sale. And now, you know, we're in a new building. It's an entire floor of a skyscraper in Midtown. Um, You're dealing with people who maybe don't really understand the need for unions like they probably a lot of people talking to them, they think of it as like, oh, this is for blue collar workers or yeah. people in the building trades who need like safety regulations. It's not for us. And, you know, part of this is a function of like privilege. I think people who didn't grow up in uh, I don't even want to say privilege, but like, yes, partially. But people who didn't grow up in a union family don't really understand the need for unions and people who grew up with a certain level of privilege. um, they don't really understand yet that these uh, these intergenerational losses that they're suffering will be permanent if they don't do something about it. 
And yeah, and can you talk a little bit more, Hunter, about some of your experiences trying to unionize and especially as a freelancer, what that means you know, sure. in the media well, industry? To, to kind of piggyback off of Jamie, um, I remember at MTV, whenever we were in the midst of organizing, um, there was that really weird Kendall Jenner ad with Pepsi um, where she was like, you know, giving it to the cops or whatever. And um, we, ha- I had no idea. I mean, other people did, but Pepsi pretty much pays for all of MTV. Um, cause Pepsi owns a bunch of freaking companies and, uh, when being Taco Bell, which pays for the VMAs, we were going to do this huge hit piece on her being like, this is why this is like bad. And Pepsi calls and was like, how dare you do not do that. Do not publish it. Or we, you won't get any money. We're like, what? Like we're a news desk. You can't tell us to do that. But whenever there's a corporation paying for your paychecks, you got to, you know, appease them and you, you got to make sure everyone gets paid. So like that was very eye opening, but, um, Organizing, uh, I've, I, I, I'm currently in the midst of some uh, efforts, two different efforts right now. Can't say anything, NDA. Um, but I will say uh, I've been involved for two years, and it's, um, it's really interesting to see, again, how the trend is becoming more normalized and how people are really um, hungo to make it uh, a better experience for everyone. And, like, it's just really nice to see uh, people that um, – make decent paychecks they don't do great but to be like um you know what though like this company makes five billion dollars like let's uh get some transparency and let's all get paid properly and like yes that's a risk you know but at the same time though we're already kind of numbered you know working in a newsroom like the cycles happen and like you know just because you're a staffer doesn't mean that you have full security um freelancers definitely less um but yeah no it's it's been really nice to see from 2016 till now how it's like happening everywhere and you're hearing announcements all the time and like the solidarity is definitely you know going across everywhere um so yeah i'm i'm really i'm optimistic i know things still definitely get extremely weird whenever you announce a union at any kind of news desk management's like what the hell i mean like they don't know what it is they don't agree with it they think it's going to only cost them money or they're going to lose money but really it's like no like we're the sausage workers we're making the sausages like we're doing the actual work like we would just like to have a life. <laughs> and like you said too, it's like 10 years from now, like, Whoa, the money's supposed to work out. No, like we need to like make sure that we're getting paid properly because paychecks aren't getting any higher. It's only getting more expensive to live. And, um, I don't know how long I'll be at the New York times. I mean, I love my job. It's like a very life balanced thing. And I have never experienced that in the news, but I just know from my experiences, it's numbered. It's not going to be permanent. Yeah, your story about Pepsi reminded me of this thing that I heard about somebody who was working on um, Years of Living Dangerously. Mm. And Pepsi's influence actually changed their story about palm oil. You know, palm oil, the deforestation yeah. is a huge, oh, you know, part about climate change. Pepsi and loves palm oil. Yeah. yeah, you know, they like it. It's in, I'm sure, everything. It's probably yeah. just like liquid palm oil that we're all, if you drink Pepsi. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that like changed, you know that entire show and their organizing strategy around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a second, I want to talk a little bit more. But um, uh, so you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener sponsor WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 and streaming on your favorite podcast app. We've just been talking a bunch about uh, some unionizing efforts in in media. Um, and we you know, we're talking a lot about, uh, you know, the, the gig economy, which I think a lot of millennials also experience in in other different industries, but we're seeing a lot in media. Um, And I feel like another trend, too, that we're seeing a lot, and especially in 2019 right now, is a lot of 
layoffs in, mm, in, in yeah. media. Um, how has that affected the kind of industry and does that make people maybe less willing to organize or more willing well, to organize? I think it really does kind of like amplify that horrible like pay your dues kind of thing. It's making that more normalized um, because you're when you're told that you sh- shouldn't be as shocked when you do get laid off. But still, at the same time, it's like, I got to pay my bills. Like, I don't have time <laughs> to, like, find another job. And, like, whenever that happens and you're paycheck to paycheck, you don't have the privilege to take the right job. You got to take the next job. And, like, that just kind of puts you on this weird trajectory. And, you know, it's 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 stressful. And it's, like, not uh, contingent to having a good life. Yeah, absolutely. Ugh. I mean, if anything, I think that the looming layoffs should make people more inspired to organize. Yeah. Because if you have a staff job in media right now and you're not planning for what's going to happen to you, mm-hmm. if and when your company goes under or you just get laid off or like Facebook changes their algorithm again and like mm-hmm. doesn't tell people like you're an idiot. Like people need to be planning for this. It can absolutely happen to you and it will happen to you. Mm-hmm. And it, will, it will. Like, it will. I, I don't think unions can solve the problem of, like, Google and Facebook taking all of the ad money away and drying up, like, okay, there's one problem when you have advertisers messing with editorial. Then there's another problem when advertisers just go away. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you supposed to do then? So it, it can't really solve that problem, but it can give us all a softer landing like yeah. I'm, I'm really actually kind of pessimistic about the state of the written word right now. Like all of my writer friends who are still in the game, who I respect, are asking me how to get into podcasting now. And I'm like, well, this thing just kind of fell into my lap like deus ex machina. I have no idea what I would be doing right now if Sam hadn't come along and offered me this job. And now I have my own show that's like, a user, a subscriber-based model, which is great. And I think that is the immediate future for media. But, like, we don't do reporting. Like, the amount of overhead it takes to go out in the world and do actual reporting is, like, I mean, you could be making as much money as Chapo Trap House and it still wouldn't be enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really... What I always remember is just that pivot to video. It was such a bust. Like, it was such a... Oh, my God. It was such a lie. Like, it was really Facebook and Google... Um, mainly Facebook amplifying their view counts. And what that is for salespeople, that's how they pretty much get clients and advertisers. Like, look at the views. Like, this is what you're going to get. And then when that changed, people, advertisers were like, well, I'm just going to go back to YouTube now. Like, the, the, these ad numbers aren't as big because, you know, they were inflated. They weren't real. Um, but, uh, you know, let's bring up, like, Mike Magazine. Like, that was a huge story but at the same time though i wasn't shocked because like i knew that their whole revenue was based off of facebook watch and no one watches facebook watch it's inflated numbers so whenever that wasn't renewed that was the only shocking part that the whole business was relying on that i just thought it was like a chunk but that's a perfect example like we are in as new newsrooms we rely on advertising and that in a capitalistic society it doesn't work because you need news all the time there's stories all the time but in order to like pay for those things you need money and you need clicks and then you need to buzz your headlines. You need to like, you know, make your stuff juicy and like amplify it that way. But that's not good journalism. That's content. You know, it's it's a whole there's so many layers to it. It's yeah. a huge mess. So many people lost their jobs when the video pivot happened. And then mm-hmm. they found out the numbers were falsified and the video people lost their jobs, too. Yeah. It's like ridiculous. I mean, 
I sound like a broken record. I feel like this is a safe space to talk about how capitalism <laughs> ruins everything. But like, mm, maybe it's not a good idea to let private corporations have this much power over the entire fourth estate, which I think most people will agree is mm -hmm. essential for any kind of vaguely functioning democracy. I mean, God, I remember the day that we had our massive layoff at MTV. I was out on a shoot. This is right when I, this is the day before I got transferred to TV. So it was very strategic when Vi comes in, but we're out on a shoot with Haim and we came back, 92 people were laid off. People were like sobbing in the building um, picking up their stuff. People in LA were all laid off. And we just finished this like awesome documentary on Matthew Shepard's uh, family uh, in Oklahoma. And the people that worked on it, they were fired. They were gone. They got no credit. Like MTV took all the credit. I mean, it's like when you work uh, in these conglomerate like media newsrooms, like that stuff is so normal. But at the same time, though, like how could you have done that to all those people? Like 92 oh people, like maybe half got severance, the rest didn't. And that's what I've learned with organizing that um, that's where you, you have to do it. You have to get people their severance because they're not going to get it. You know, just because you're unionizing doesn't mean you're going to like fix everything, but at least get people severance, at least get them something when they get laid off. Absolutely. Yeah. And this just reminds me. Um, so a little while after my failed organizing drive ended in defeat mm -hmm. and I quit because I had a horrible, abusive boss who was really mean to me and sexually harassed me as well. Uh, and I did not trust HR to be on my side, which mm -hmm. is another thing that unions are good for. They are actually on your side, and it's their job to advocate for you and not for the company. Um, death and taxes wasn't getting enough uh, ad revenue, wasn't getting enough clicks, and the company decided to shut it down. And everyone but one person lost their job, mm. and she was absorbed into spin. So, like, I don't take any pleasure in uh, having been right about this. But a lot of the things I was saying to people did come true. Yeah. Like you don't organize, and and this was extra uh, BS, if I may say that on the radio, because um, people were compensated in their um, in their severance packages based on how long they had been at that company, mm. not the company that owned Death and Texas before that or the one before that. So that was kind of garbage as well. And how does that actually affect, affect to like the actual content that's created? You know, we talked about how Pepsi was able to keep MTV from reporting on certain things mm -hmm. and years of living dangerously. And then you have things like the American Petroleum Institute buying full page ads in the Washington Post that are meant to look like content. Mm -hmm. How do the ad dollars kind of dictate what gets covered and what doesn't? I mean, it just dictates like the majority of it at this point. I mean, sponsored content, such a thing. I mean, like, I'm just gonna talk from the video side. Like I've worked on so many sponsored series where like, it looks like an actual show, like a digital show, but it's like literally being paid by Microsoft and we're being told what to do. And you know, it's, it's, it's a great way to make money, but it's also like very easy to like decipher it as the viewer be like, Oh, that's sponsored. I don't want to watch that, but it's still being made. <laughs> doesn't mean it's being watched, but like it's, it's a, easy way for ad people to make that money and it kind of takes away from the real stories that you want to report on but you got to like do it's like you know it's like your your duty to like keep the place afloat um and it takes uh over the work that you are maybe like that's whatever your beat is you know it takes over 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I worked for um, a filmmaker, and he would be on shows like MSNBC, you know, talking about the dangers of fracking, and he's, like, bookended by, you know, natural gas ads. Like, you know, sure. he's on there saying, like, actual reporting, and, mm-hmm. you know, this is dangerous, this, commi- you know, contributes to climate change, and then you have ads with these, like, pretty blonde ladies being like, clean, natural gas. And, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's right before, you know, the news, so yeah. it's it's very... And then also with like the ability of people like Google, you know, you can that can be the first thing that pops up when you look for these things. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are some kind of other forms that are starting to take form where people actually have more control over their content? You know, what is you know, this is the democratic socialist. What is a more socialist vision for for media? Uh, I've thought a lot about this. I don't have a really good answer like Okay, you could uh, hypothetically tax the big companies that are taking all the ad revenue, like Facebook and Google, and give that to media nonprofits as a grant. Uh, there's there's no reason why media should be run for profit, um, and now it's really not making a profit. So maybe that creates an opening to come up mm-hmm. with some new models. But then again, like I don't know. I saw Jonathan Chait tweet about how maybe it's time for media to become like nonprofit or philanthropic. I'm like, okay, so now rich people can have even more control over it or corporations can donate and try to make themselves look good. But then if you nationalize it, uh, then the government has control over the Mm. media, which is also kind of bad. Uh, I mean, I would always prefer uh, some sort of worker-owned co-op version model and I don't know that anyone's tried it but uh, it seems like it's worth a shot right I I will say something that was kind of eye-opening for me when I started the New York Times my orientation day so like just a little backstory when I ended at Vox they were really bitter even though that they were like laying me off but they were bitter that I was getting another job and I ended my day at like 8 a.m with them finishing an episode and then went straight to the New York Times at 10 a.m for orientation so I'm like dead but I've done that so many times for other companies where like you're having those crazy hours, but New York times orientation, they started going through all these numbers with all these other like news decks, uh, like, um, Fox, uh, Vox, NBC, uh, CNN. And then New York times had this huge, like, uh, growth and, um, ad dollars. And what it was, was their paywall. They're like, we've really convinced people the past five years to like subscribe because we have like five free articles and eventually people pay like, I don't know, it's like the one ninety nine a week or something like that. Very cheap for the digital. Um, but it works. Even though the New York Times is a behemoth company, it's still actually a locally family-owned business. It's not public. Um, so yeah, it was just it was interesting to see that. And even like the New Yorker, that's a paywall as well, but it's not as good. But New York Times, they did it five years. They figured out, you know, but they already had capital, so they were able to like lose money for five years to make it work. But paywall, you know, wow. subscription based, good works. for them. Yeah, I mean, all the local news stations now are being bought up by Sinclair, oh. which is basically a disinformation company at this point in time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and all the you... alt weeklies mm-hmm. are just the Village Voice is gone. Uh, the New York Press is gone. It breaks my heart. And even if we had like a co-op model, like I have a co-op model for my podcast, it's it's still not going to support the kind of news gathering. Sure. Like. I don't know what the answer is uh, that we could even do within capitalism. I know. So. Yeah. It's d- one more reason. Well, it's actually kind of wild. I'm from the South and I used to work for Sinclair and I was working for a news station called uh, WTAT Fox 24, local station. I was a senior producer 
And uh, we were technically owned by Sinclair, but we had a different name because they didn't want a monopoly locally. So my paychecks were different from other people in the office. Then Sinclair came in one day. They're like, by the way, we're buying out Channel 5, Channel 4, and Channel, channel uh, 2. And we're like, how could they do that? They created all these like weird little business names, but it was all Sinclair. So like, it's that was seven years ago. Like, Imagine what's happened since then. Sinclair has probably bought out almost every local station. But at the same time, though, those local stations have ad teams to like keep them afloat. But no one's buying those ads. Yeah, so. and in places like, you know, my family's from Pittsburgh, and that's mm-hmm. where, like, everybody gets their news is, like, local TV. And when you have, mm-hmm. you know, what we saw, like, where with these Sinclair stations, like, everyone's repeating the same lines over and over oh, again. It's creepy. It's, yeah, it's really creepy. But, well, WBAI is completely listener-sponsored, which is how we're able to bring you this great <laughs> democratic socialist content. Heck you're, yeah. <laughs> you're listening to Revolutions <laughs> Per Minute. In a little bit, we are going to be opening up the phone lines. Uh, um, that number is 212-209-2877. This is Revolutions Per Minute, and we're talking all about how capitalism is absolutely destroying uh, media today and our ability to get information out and also support workers in, in these media jobs. Um, so one kind of model that has come out, or one people who are trying to do this, is a group called Means TV. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunter, could you talk a little bit about who they are and yeah, uh, yeah. It's, uh, what they're trying to do? Yeah, it's, it's my friend. Nick and Naomi. Um, I met them actually when I was working at Vox and I was making explainer videos at Vox and they're like, oh, we love the content you're working on. We would love for you to work on some stuff. So I shot three videos with them. Um, I can't remember the names of everyone in there, but uh, Katie was downstairs and we did a video with her. Um, but they're amazing. I mean, like they kind of hit like every checkbox that you need to have a honest media company. They have viewers, they have eyeballs. Um, their YouTube channel has the original Nyan Cat uploads. So they have like 160 million views. So like that's a great like trick, you know, not everyone could do that, but they went viral and they also went viral with the AOC campaign. And that was literally just Nick and Naomi doing that by themselves. And it has created all this buzz for them. Um, and now they're creating means TV, which is a, um, paywall. Like you subscribe, you donate money and it's content that's for, um, people like us. And it's, what's so beautiful about it is that the money is transparent. They're going to show everyone where the money's going to, it's going to the business. It's not going to like be this like crazy thing where Nick and Naomi are making like, you know, thousands of dollars. Like it's going to be, you know, a properly like almost union owned business. I hope they unionize, but um, they're already kind of treating it as if it is. And yeah, I mean, that kind of production level when you're talking about video, like that's very expensive to do. You mm-hmm. can't create kind of cheap content that way. Yeah. Um, and then right now in TV, it seems like a lot, you know, especially these like big channels, it seems just that it's more about entertainment really and like what is going to, you know, get big headlines and mm-hmm. also so much of the budgets are going to these kind of like big name people. You know, you have like the co-hosts of the evening shows making millions and millions of dollars a year. Like, yeah. didn't Megyn Kelly get like something like $66 million and she got fired? Yeah. <laughs> and so how do you think that kind of affects the content and the just feel of the newsroom? Um, I mean, th- that's not distributed well at all, for one. I mean, that money could be going to like the people that make the news, not the personality. Oh um, so, How I mean, many lower level staffers could they fairly compensate if they just fired Jonathan Shate? Sure. New York Magazine. <laughs> like, is he really worth 10 of those other people? No, no. I mean, that's the thing, though. It's like it's such a nepotistic environment, though, in itself. Like, it's such a good boys club. That's a whole other thing. But like, yeah, I mean, it's it's if, if that wasn't happening, we wouldn't be having all these issues. And also we wouldn't have to like lay off people because there's no money. There's money. 
it's just it's not going to the workers. It's going to the higher ups and the management and, you know, profit. And how, you know, do you think when it comes to like the actual content, then that's created, you know, like the media spent the last two years obsessed with the Mueller report and Russia, you know, and that's just because they think that's the headline. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the kind of things that are not getting reported on because we're all focused on these things that they believe will, you know, become viral or the clicks, you know, that kind of stuff. So many things. I mean, uh, I, I saw some stat about the amount of Russia coverage that MSNBC did over the past year or so and it was it was it just ate the entire network they barely did any reporting on the disaster in puerto rico which continues to this day nobody's reporting on that um flint flint michigan they they did do some reporting on flint i will give them credit or credit is due but like so like labor okay Mm -hmm. there used to be a labor reporter at every newspaper and now there's obviously not what what else? <laughs> I mean, it's just such a, um, you know, buzzy thing that they focus on. And if the work is easier, then those newsrooms are going to do that. So like, oh, hey, if our beats Russia now, let's like figure out how we could like stretch that out and like fill up our airtime because, you know, it's a 24 hour news cycle. You know, some people want an easier day and they'll make an easy story. And, you know, it's it's there's again, there's layers to it. Um, it's about, you know, getting that out to fill airtime. Yeah, and then, you know, there'll be things like where they temporarily cover Flint because it's, you know, catchy and like celebrities at the moment are caring about it or issues like Standing Rock. You know, they have these big moments in the media and then it really kind of fades away. And it's not like that organizing goes away. It's not like these movements go away. Yeah, it's not like there was a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, no, Flint doesn't have water. The Mm -hmm. Standing Rock pipeline was built um, and those issues continue, yet there's absolutely really no coverage of it anymore. Yeah, it's usually like, you know, two or three days later, it's like, People don't care, you know, because that's how the news works. I guess one slightly good thing about the phenomena we're talking about is that cable news is not nearly as important as it used to be. I don't know anyone my age who watches cable news. It's not yeah. like for work. So maybe as uh, well, they're not shrinking yet, but they they are going they're They're going down in their in their relevance. So maybe that creates an opening as well to replace it with some more kind of independent news gathering media and and news that discloses it has an ideology because everything has an ideology, yeah. including, you know, the mainstream media, the corporate media or whatever. And, you know, I don't think people should pretend to be neutral, but they should be honest about it, yeah. about where they're coming from. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, hopefully that happens because I agree with you. It's like cable news is like something I don't even pay attention to, but um, digital isn't going away and this company is, they're, they're moving towards digital. So like they're going to try to figure it out, but I think most millennials are able to like decipher very quickly. Like, oh wait, I don't, I'm not paying attention to that because I know what that is. Like it's kind of like, you know, being a little deceitful. It's not honest. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully it'll pan out. But, you know, we got to put work into it. It's not just going to happen. Yeah. The only time I think I ever watch like cable news is if I'm like at my grandparents' house or I'm like sure. staying at a hotel. And it always like shocks me. I'm like, what? This is where people get their news. And I see the ads. And I'm like, how does this sell anybody yeah. any of this but it's stuff? Not like, news. This is it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an arena now. When you watch those um, pundits go after each other, it's just the sa- It's a formula. It's the same thing. They're just yelling. They're saying buzzwords and 
Oh, yeah. yeah. And everyone's retreating to their side of the bubble, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, liberals love to drag on Fox and its viewers, which is fair. You know, Fox is uh, <laughs> basically peddling in racist conspiracy theories mm-hmm. 24-7 at this point in time. But, you know, uh, there is also a certain psychological need that the liberal media is servicing within its bubble yeah. Uh, not limited to, but including, I mean, we're talking about the Russia stuff, just this, uh, this really intense drive on the part of centrist liberals to not learn anything that challenges their worldview. Because if it turns out it was all a big conspiracy with uh, Trump and Putin, then they don't have to accept any of the blame for what happened in 2016 or sure. look at any of the ways that, you know, bourgeois society and decay leads to right-wing authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, really, it's cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Whenever these these cable networks do what they do, they're just strengthening the tribal instincts that we have. Yeah, definitely. Um, you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI. We are now going to open up the phone lines to our callers. You can call in at 212 209 2877. You can call in, let us know what you'd like to see from a socialist media, all your gripes about what the media is reporting on today. And again, that number is 212-209-2877. And there's one thing you were kind of talking about when we're talking about this kind of like dichotomy of like the liberal media versus the conservative media and how they're actually like neither of them are really contributing to anything substantial. And I think there's also um, what I've seen kind of as an organizer too, this kind of frame of like, oh, well, we have to show both sides, right? And mm-hmm. I think one of it is probably like the the problem with the current news cycle, right? That even people who have good intentions have to, you know, produce stuff's content so quickly. And what you see is people saying things like, okay, well, let's show both sides. And then so they'll interview, you know, I do organizing on environmental stuff and then they interview the pipeline company and it's like, well, these are the sides. We don't know what's true instead of actually doing the fact checking. And I feel like the way capitalism is, is really taking out that investigative ability for a lot of reporters. Yeah, and kind of a responsibility to evaluate the things that you are doing and what effect it might have on the world. I think part of why the liberal media is so obsessively focused on Russia, honestly, is they don't want to take responsibility for their own role in the rise of Donald Trump and how they just gave him just hours and hours of free coverage yeah. for months and months before anyone took him seriously as a candidate, which is, you know, kind of messed up. But that kind of goes back into my uh, point earlier where, like, if you could find something easy to report on in a newsroom, they're going to do it, and they did it with Trump. They're like, oh, it's easy. We'll just, like, stretch it out, you know? Yeah. But that hurts democracy, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think it's good for journalists to have a point of view. Sure. Like, I reject some of these uh, these liberal ideals, I guess. Um, one model that I really like, someone I really want to give a shout-out to, actually, is my friend Brandon Jordan at Global Uprisings. I think his site is like globaluprisings.org. Like he travels around the world um, to places where they are having uprisings uh, and he doesn't pretend to be neutral and he films what's happening. He got some really crucial footage at Charlottesville that showed just how violent those um, right-wing protests were. Like it was way more violent than I saw 
anywhere else on the news or had been represented to me. I mean, I had a lot of people saying, oh, people are just getting their panties in a bunch over the alt-right. No. Like, they're just a bunch of losers. Like, no, they were trying to set people on fire with their tiki torches, among other things. I mean, he was in Gezi Park. He was in um, Greece when they were having general strikes. He he's He's done a lot of really good work. So I hope that we see more people, more journalists like that, because I really... Sorry, I do not care about providing a neutral platform because when you provide a neutral platform, it is 100% vulnerable to be taking, taken over by the right. And all I'll say on that is that really there is no two sides. There's one side, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a failed argument and it's, it's not a way to um, have a proper journalistic integrity. You have to pick a side. You have to – and that side is the right side, you know. <laughs> like you have to be um, moving towards the truth and um, – a two-sided argument uh, leads to tribalism again. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe in, in grassroots grassroots journalism. And we've got a caller on the line. Caller, can you hear us? Yes, I hear you. Hi. What did you got to say today? Hi. Number one, it's a great show. It's a great discussion. It needs to happen because, uh, you know, I'm guilty of it myself. I do watch. I'm a registered Republican, but... I'm actually a liberal. Imagine that. I've, I've morphed into a liberal. Huh. But uh, I watch both sides of the uh, the news broadcast. I watch Fox News, and it makes me cringe. And I feel at home with uh, MSNBC. But at the end of the day, I'm looking for an objective for our country. What is our objective? I think it's for all American people to be living the American dream. And how do you get that? You don't have hungry children. You don't have ungrate, uneducated children. And uh, I feel that we need to unite. United we stand, divided we fall. And uh, if anybody falls in this country, I feel bad about it. Well, thank you so much for calling in. And, and yeah, I totally agree that, you know, this kind of dichotomy between two parties and you have to pick one side is also very much accentuated by the media. Um, we've got another caller on the line. Caller, can you hear? Yeah, hi You're live. This is Go ahead. Bob, Bob from Brooklyn. Hey, Bob. What's going on yeah, today? Uh, yesterday morning, I was listening to the Juliana Forlano program right here on BAI, and she had on Bob Henley, and uh, he had written an article recently called The Corporatization of WNYC. Now, I've given up on the corporate media on TV as far as them reporting about... Uh, so many people who still cannot access affordable health care. But uh, Bob Henley said that at WNYC, they're really run by a board of trustees, and he said they're a bunch of Wall Street fat cats. Now, my main problem with that station specifically is there is a public affairs program called the Brian Lira program on every morning, and he has on some very powerful people, politicians, journalists, and things like that. And he really does not want to go to the subject of uh, people who do not have health care. Occasionally he brings it up. Occasionally he does a show about health care. But there, he always says, call up if you have any question about any issue. And it could be a, a political official, uh, a pub public official or a journalist. I have called up numerous, numerous times, and he never takes my call about health care. Now, I don't know. Maybe there's no connection Maybe there's nothing suspicious going on, but I mean, he just does not want to talk about health care. And the mayor has a program where he said that uh, he's rolling out a new health care program for New York City, Mayor de Blasio. 
He said, the mayor said there are 600,000 people in New York City alone that have no health care, and 300,000 are uh, undocumented immigrants. And I called up to speak to the mayor to talk about this issue. They had me on hold for 20 minutes, and then they cut me off. They said, we don't want to talk about it. Again, I don't know if there's any connection to Wall Street or capitalism, but WNYC is an absolute disgrace. Well, you don't have to worry about us not covering health care. That's definitely something we cover a lot here on Revolutions Per Minute. And we're happy to have your calls and very grateful to be on listener-sponsored WBAI. And we have one more caller. Caller, can you hear us? Yeah, yeah, hi. Um, I want to say I'm really excited about your program. I've been enjoying it a lot. Um, I'm a professional copy editor, so I've been working for the past decade and a half uh, doing less media stuff these days, but I wanted to ask your guests, uh, one, one of the guests made a point, uh, in a lot of places people will say, you know, I don't even plan on being here that long, and that was always a real obstacle we had in trying to sort of self-organize. And the other thing is they've got sort of like union-busting strategies kind of baked in these days where it's like mm. you can have a department of 12 people and half of them have like management titles. But anyway, I don't want to take too long, but how do you overcome these these crazy obstacles that are that are so pervasive? I mean, the, the workflow um, in all these places, you've got every department sort of uh, at war with each other in a way where copy and editorial are sort of antagonistic. But anyway, I'm so glad you guys are doing this. Much love, and I'm going to jump off the line. Um, yeah, I mean, I really don't have a specific answer for that because, like, what you're saying is very true. Um, and the whole management thing where people have these management titles, that's so they can't be part of unions. Um, so that is a strategy in itself. Um, really, I think what it is and what I've experienced, um, and it's not an easy answer, but it's just having honest conversations with your coworkers, taking time and dedicating that time to, like, build a relationship with them. You know, these people, you spend 40 hours of work, 40 hours a week with these people. You need to like realize like, okay, well that's kind of a family in a way. Like let's like connect and like, let's figure out what your issues are. And from there, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight, but I've seen, uh, newsrooms that I've organized, like that's where they started. And then a year later, you know, they announced. So it's like, yeah, it's really about forming those relationships because if people are saying that they're not going to stay there that long, that is common and that is a stepping stone uh, of a newsroom. Um, but still, you know, open that com- communication, open that that uh, that um, relationship. Uh, it's such a catch twenty two because unions would maybe give you the resources they would make you want to stay at your job for longer and give you some semblance of control over your life. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that if everyone's just looking to the next thing and they don't want to work hard on unionizing. So I mean, I, I guess it's it's better to vote out of love than fear, right? But it doesn't hurt to scare people a little and say, "Hey, the next place you go is not going to be any better, and these problems aren't going to go anywhere unless we all stand together and do something." Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 across the board, these issues. Yeah. And just talking about like talking to your coworkers, something we talk a lot about on the show is just like the revolutionary act of canvassing and talking to your neighbors and how powerful that is in organizing. So we want to leave people, as always, with like something that they can get involved in. So the New York City Democratic Socialists of America has something called the Media Working Group. And so the Media Working Group is a volunteer powerhouse that creates all of NYC DSA's amazing graphics, communications, and even this show. And it's having its first 
general meeting of this year on April 2nd. Um, we'll have some, they'll have some great guest speakers lined up. You can learn how to get involved with all this great media that is being created. And if you want to follow our guests, we, their Twitter handles are at Hunter Boone, at Jamie underscore Elizabeth, and her podcast is at the anti, or the, at me, sorry, at the underscore Antifada. And you can always follow us on Twitter at NYCRPM. And we'll catch you next week. Make the